0: The problems just keep growing. And we solve one problem and a new problem pops up again. And it's new and exciting every day. And you get to really see the lives that you're touching. This Engineering and public health both save lives.
1: Welcome to the Complete Engineering Podcast. My name is Carl Vogel, and at the time of this recording, the outbreak of the novel coronavirus, COVID-19, has become a big public topic around the world, uh, especially in the area of public health and safety. In February, Nebraska was at the center of attention with patients being transported to the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha for treatment and Camp Ashland for a quarantine. And it's not the first time that UNMC has been in the international spotlight with patients infected with Ebola being brought to the biocontainment unit there in 2014. The University of Nebraska-Lincoln College of Engineering is playing a key role in evaluating the processes used to transport patients especially by the Defense Department and the Air Force. Today, we're talking with Terry Stents and Kelly Hurstein. They're faculty in the Durham School of Architectural Engineering and Construction. And they have recently, uh, in the last few years, done uh, some work on a study with the Air Force's Airborne Biocontainment Unit involving the uh, transport of patients who have been infected with an infectious disease. We're going to talk to them about the processes involved and what they've learned about the process of transporting these patients. Welcome to the podcast today.
0: Thank you for Thank you me. very much.
1: Now what is it that you were studying and you were looking into in this project you worked
2: with and, and who were you working with? This was a Department of Defense funded research project. The contract was with UNMC, the biocontainment folks in the College of Public Health and the College of Medicine. And the whole idea of this study over a one to two year period, was to evaluate the performance of the transport isolation system in terms of a whole series of parameters to make sure that, that 24-7 this type of um, evacuation and transport of highly infected patients could be done and be assured that it would come off the way it's supposed to, to perform. And so our part was to play the human factors, ergonomics, and safety aspects, crew performance for that particular exercise.
1: You guys are both occupational safety ergonomics human factors experts. What things did you draw on from that experience in these projects?
0: Well, we're both industrial engineers, and so we have degrees from the University of Nebraska in industrial engineering. And we used a lot of the experience that we had through that education, working with humans and ergonomics, human factors. And we work with humans all the time in construction, so construction is a very human-centered field, and that translated well to our research in public health.
1: I know, Terry, I I talked to you previously about a project that you had done uh, with ironworkers measuring the data about job site safety. Was that similar to some of the work that was done
2: in this project with the uh, Air Force? The overall idea was similar in terms of human factors and safety, but in that particular case, um, ironworkers are at high risk for falls, and when they fall, if they're not protected, they die. And we were very interested in studying their gait, you know, when they walk along a steel beam. They're carrying 65 pounds of tools and safety harness stuff, and uh, they have told us anecdotally that the second half of their workday, they're tired. And When you're up that high in the air and you're walking around, your body movements, your gait, the speed that you work, and how you handle yourself changes. We wanted to analyze that, and so we devised a series of experiments that actually uh, collected data on the gait and the changing gait as ironworkers could walk across a steel beam. Not at elevation. Just up off the floor a little ways and we've been studying that for about four and a half years and we've come away with some some real interesting things about human movement kind of like a circus performer and how they can change these things and how we can modify the coatings on steel beams to make them less slippery because some coatings are more slippery than others and iron workers will tell you that but no one's ever measured it before so we've we've done friction testing on different types of coated steel beams and then we put human subjects with instrumentation, wireless instrumentation on their extremities and have them walk these steel beams with and without tool belts, with holding a toolbox or not. And we can detect changes in gait and we can detect the amount, the grade of friction that's on a, a steel beam coating. So in the end, we can recommend to architects and engineers, here's the coatings you need to do to make the job safer at elevation for iron workers, which we never knew before. Was there a lot
1: of that similar stu- similar things that were part of this DoD and Air Force study that you were studying surfaces? You're studying what the uh, healthcare workers were carrying; those types of things.
0: Absolutely yes. And then we've also done research with looking at locomotive train engineers and their fatigue, and using self-reported assessments on their fatigue levels. And we use that experience to draw on the fatigue levels of healthcare workers.
2: There are slips, trips, and fall hazards in this TIS operation, and we did identify a few things that could be improved. And uh, but we were we were very concerned about fatigue, crew fatigue. We knew these missions are going to be extremely long, uh, longer than train crews drive a train over the road. What would be a length of a mission? You know, They've told us 24 hours or more.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, because the mission begins when you leave. The United States, and you have to fly to wherever you're picking up your patient from, and then bring them back. And you're under high stress situations. You might be going into a situation that is unstable, um, and you might have a critical patient that's going to require a lot of care.
1: Right, and unlike the iron workers who can, uh, we assume, can go home and sleep at night, these people that are doing the work here are up 24 hours or longer. They do they get much sleep? Do they get much of a chance to rest while they're en route? Either to there or back to the hospital?
0: There are litters set up where they can sleep, but a litter—if I mean, think about—if you ever watch the show Mash—I mean, it's just a cot that's stretched out between two poles, so it's not exactly comfortable. It's also very loud, and there's a lot of movement going on, and so the quality of sleep. There was not an opportunity to sleep on the test mission that we did, but we did monitor their sleep using wrist actigraphy for two days before and two days after to look at if sleep paid a role in their fatigue levels.
2: For instance, you know, if you got a call and had to report for a mission within just a few hours and you would just done a 24-hour duty cycle on an airbase, you don't get a chance to sleep. You go where you're told to go and you do the mission. And so we wanted to take a look at those, those factors that were involved in terms of sleep, refreshment, and preparation. In the military, you have to learn to do without sleep. And in this case, this is a high vigilance task. You can't dope off. You've got to really focus all your attention on the TIS and on the patients that are very sick that you're transporting. So this is a vigilance, expertise, task, pushed to the limit. And, of course, we were concerned about measuring and analyzing the effects on the clinicians during this type of activity.
1: And it's fatigue. It's, uh, I would assume, nutrient-related,
0: losing electrolytes and things. You
2: can't eat inside the TIS and you can't drink anything in there.
0: No, but... The crews during the during the simulation missions were eating and drinking outside of the test. All aeromedical evacuation people, they do similar type missions, not with infectious patients, but maybe moving people who have been injured. So they're used to having to make sure that they keep up their nutrition and their water intake because when you're yeah. at height, you dehydrate faster. And Not to mention wearing that much PPE, you are constantly sweating and you're losing a lot of yeah, water. Your sweat,
2: your sweat rate is much higher. And we noticed all the air crew, uh, all Air crews had little backpacks, and they had water bottles in there and little s- snack bars and things. So they they kind of knew how to handle that. But you can only do that outside the TIS. Then you have to clean up. If you're going to go back in, you have to don all of your PPE, your personal pe- protective equipment, and go back in there. So it's it's highly controlled.
0: But if there's a breach, then all of that goes out the window, and now everyone is in full PPE, feeling the effects of that, and maybe flying over an ocean, there may be nowhere to land, and so you have to deal with that.
2: Once a mission is done, they clean that entire aircraft and the TIS. They have special cleaning equipment that goes through and sanitizes everything. Imagine landing in an, on an Air Force base or a civilian airfield with a contaminated aircraft. So it's a that's another whole set of problems there, too, that they have to handle. We know this is a 24-7 capability of the U.S. Air Force. Mm -hmm. It's at the direction of the State Department. So if somebody has the uh, coronavirus that the State Department wants the military to transport, this would be the type of equipment they do and the the Air Force unit that they would task. Mm -hmm. But as of right now, nobody's reporting a C-17 airborne to go pick up somebody in Africa Mm -hmm. But that Mm -hmm. could happen tomorrow. It could happen in the next hour. They could evacuate the embassy in South Korea. That's right. Right. They are are prepped 24-7. And that could do it, yeah. Yeah. This is a built structure. It was designed and tested to 11 Gs. That's a lot of mechanical engineering. Yeah. There's a lot of HVAC, heating, ventilation, air conditioning Mm -hmm. type, HEPA filtering. This is an engineered environment. Mm -hmm. And it has to perform a strict, highly Mm -hmm. infectious clinical job by humans. For humans.
0: And then you need to be able to offload it, put it in a hangar where it can go be disinfected, and then load people onto the aircraft or a tank or whatever else mm-hmm. in a matter of minutes. You can't just contaminate the entire plane.
2: This is a flying, mm-hmm. medical, engineering system. And it has to all work in sync. Right. And we're not talking about small aircraft.
1: We're talking cargo planes that carry thousands and thousands of pounds of equipment typically tanks and motorized vehicles and the like so how big are these planes and how big are the tisses that are used to transport the patients
2: well the C17 is the next the next largest aircraft would be a C5 galaxy the one with the big nose that opens up so we're talking about a very large transport aircraft that needs quite a bit of runway the tiss units themselves are about 20 feet long, Mm -hmm. maybe 8 feet wide and maybe 7 feet tall. They are kits that can be disassembled and reassembled. They are transportable in the racking and rail system inside of a military aircraft. And uh, once you load those in the aircraft, it fills up pretty much the entire cargo bay. There's not a lot of room to, to move around. And all of the powered equipment, the air handling, the air filtering, the electrical, the electronics, all of those things is on the outside of the TIS. So you have this rectangular box envelope with all of this stuff on the outside. Once again, the boundaries are really important to maintain. It's a difficult built environment, very much unlike most of what we're used to seeing in construction, except in the biocontainment unit at the hospital. And then you have to say, "This is what if we had to do that portable? What, would you, what kind of a structure would you have? Mm-hmm. How could you knock it down and build it back up? How could you clean it? How could you transport it from one place to another? How could you store it for a long period of time and then bring it out on a moment's notice, put it together, load it, make sure it all works, and go airborne? This is a, a real performance trick, and that's what the Air Force does.
1: Did that inform maybe some processes that the Air Force is using and what kind of recommendations
2: did you make? From our end, probably a couple, three recommendations. One is how crucial training is. Train, train, train. And uh, one thing that is a concern is that when you have a military team that's trained uh, to be able to deploy like this on a mission, uh, they have to have continuity. And in, In the military, you get transferred all around. So training is a huge issue. The second thing I think that we were able to do is point out how important continuing to work on ergonomics and safety is. We can't just stop here. We've got to keep making things better and better. And I think we put that on the radar screen, and I think the Air Force is going to have that on the radar screen and and working with it for a long time to come. Probably the third thing uh, we showed was that um, vigilance was pretty good. It wasn't perfect, but it was pretty good. We learned a lot about that. And secondly, that the biomechanical stressors on uh, crew members was somewhat moderate, but some of the patient handling put a lot of back strain and a lot of shoulder strain on these folks. And you, you don't want these highly trained people to be injured. They've got to be able to perform. And so we pointed out some things that could be done there in patient handling and maybe future modification of the tests that would make uh, the biomechanical stressors less.
1: Kelly actually got to observe a mission You were part of a a flight mission that that was a simulation. Tell us about that mission and what you observed.
0: Yes, so it was very exciting. Um, I got to fly with the Aeromedical Evacuation Team and our partners at UNMC and observe what was happening and do testing amid flight, which was pretty exciting. We had uh, simulation patients and so they were, we had real humans and we also had some mannequins and so simulating different scenarios that could happen. I'd never been on a military aircraft before, and so this was a new experience for me. I had been to Offutt a few times, but going to another Air Force base, seeing the rows and rows of C-17s, just understanding how large those aircraft are. And you go to SAC Air Base Museum over in Ashland, and those are some pretty impressive aircraft. But then you go see a C-17, it's a whole different ball of wax there. But these teams are really dedicated to what they do, and they're highly specialized. They We're really happy that we were there doing this research. They had a lot of really great feedback. We were able to give some really solid recommendations that we think will help them. But it was pretty exciting to be able to do that. I will say taking off and landing without any windows is definitely a thrill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it was exciting.
2: Trying to recall, Kelly, did the mission start at Offutt or start in Charleston?
0: It started in Charleston. Flew over the Great Lakes just to add some more time. It's only, a, I think, a four-hour flight between Charleston and Offutt. So we spent about, I think it was about eight hours just kind of Mosey around the Great Lakes, I got to go up in the cockpit, look out the window, talk to the pilots, um, just kind of see flying in a whole different perspective. Also looking at how the pilots are able to sleep mid-flight and you know, talking to them, giving them some recommendations on or just learning about how they do these long haul flights, because this is very common for a C-17 pilot to fly all over the world on long-haul flights and then on the way back there were some storms coming in and so we took the direct route home and ended up having some turbulence which was great because well it was a little scary I will say to be on a cargo flight during turbulence but to be able to have that as part of our simulation and see what kind of a worst case scenario that could happen um simulate some power failures Landed in Charleston, ended up having some bad weather, and we got stuck on the plane for about an hour and a half because of a lightning storm. But it gave us the opportunity to spend more time with the air medical evacuation team and decompress and figure out what, how we could make good, best suggestions.
2: They eventually landed at Offutt, offloaded patients and, and dummies or mannequins, and then they went airborne and flew back to Charleston, mm-hmm. so it was a, like a round robin.
0: And Terry and a team from the Med Center met us uh, on the runway at Offit to observe the offloading and to make recommendations for EMS.
1: These recommendations, have these recommendations been received from the Air Force? Were, were they surprised at some of the findings? And what,
2: what was the reaction, I guess? I think the Air Force's reaction was very professional. Yeah, uh, Everything we did was very well received. I think the things we confirmed, they were very happy with, and it confirmed what they thought they knew. And I think things that we pointed out that, could stand some continuous improvement like any system, we're also very much appreciated. We totally enjoyed working with the Air Force. And we think that, we think in the long run, the engineering college has a a vital role in helping solve military problems. And we want to continue. And we think it was very positive. And my impression from everybody in the Air Force that this was worth doing and that um, they would rely on us again to help them. It's nice to have Offutt here, have that connection. You both had mentioned that you're uh, trained in public health. I'm a certified professional ergonomist. Uh, it's a fairly rigorous process for over a period of years. You have to have at least one graduate degree in this area. Most of us are engineers. Some are psychologists. Then there's um, two eight-hour exams like the P.E. Mm-hmm. either pass or you don't. I've been doing this for almost 30 years now.
0: And mm-hmm. I met Terry through my studies in industrial engineering. I met him um, while I was studying for my master's degree. And he's really been... A tremendous mentor for me got me interested in public health, and I'm now studying so that I can be a certified professional ergonomist, which mm-hmm. is quite the journey. Uh, it's going to take me several years to get there, but without his leadership, uh, I would never. Be ready mentoring, mentoring, mentoring,
1: mentoring, mentoring, <laughs> mentoring. That's one of the. That's a key thing here. But for students who are interested in engineering, what would be the advantages of going into a public health field for them as engineers?
0: Because we're always going to need engineering and we're always going to need public health. The problems just keep growing. And we solve one problem and a new problem pops up again. And it's new and exciting every day. And you get to really see the lives that you're touching. This Engineering and public health both save lives.
2: Everything by design and everything by performance of design is what this is all about. And in public health, we're looking at every human and every natural environment situation you could possibly be in and I think sometimes engineers forget that everything we do affects people and the environment and so working with an interdisciplinary team helps us produce better designs and better performance Mm -hmm. and certainly in all areas of public health need engineering input and we need their input too. We look forward to a long relationship with UNMC.
0: And we love working with students. If there's students that are interested in public health and how engineering applies to public health, they should come talk to us. We'll help them.
2: The ones that that we've helped get into this College of Public Health primarily are from biological systems engineering. But the other engineering disciplines could do this too. And if there are any students who want to know about this or how to do it, we are the ones that can show them how we did it. And I think the outcomes would be very good. We have an MPH degree graduate. Corey Sinek from Biological Systems Engineering, who is now a regional VA hospital director as a certified industrial hygienist in California. She was in Omaha, and she did so well she got promoted. So there's engineers in the in the VA hospital system. It's awesome. And now, as far as this project goes, uh, what's the future? Where's, where's this headed from here? They know we're here. They know the group at UNMC is here. And all they have to do is pick up the phone and say, we've got another project, mm-hmm. we're ready to go. In the meantime, Kelly and I are working with Environmental Safety and Health on the Offutt Air Force Base in safety and ergonomics problems as outreach. And we're just setting up a project now to get involved with them over the summer. So and we they, just
0: finished a project with them looking at lower back injuries and material handling.
2: Inside of aircraft, which is very strenuous. I've also had a couple of military students who finished their MPH at at the UNMC College of Public Health, and they are now on active duty doing these things. So we've we've been uh, faculty advisors, degree program advisors, and mentors for the full-time active duty military people who get the MPH degree like what we have and then go back to active duty and serve in that capacity. So the military is ramped up to want more of these things as well inside their active duty component.
1: Well, thank you, Kelly and Terry, for for coming by and talking about this and and sharing the work that that you're doing that can be life-saving around the world, uh, especially helping our Air Force. Thank you for the work that you've done, and thank you for coming in.
0: Well, thank you for having us today.
1: Yes, thank you very
0: much. Thank you for listening to the Complete Engineering Podcast. For more information, visit us at engineering.unl.edu.